All right, everybody. Now, while um, while that's being passed around, we can go ahead and open our Bibles. Open up to Daniel chapter five. Daniel chapter five. We're going to begin. Oh, verse sixteen. That's where we left off last week. Daniel five sixteen. <clears throat> So um, we only kind of just begun this chapter. Um, I think I said it last week how a lot of these chapters in Daniel are almost split into two parts. Um, that's, it's not my phone ringing. Is that my phone ringing? No. no. Okay, it's the same ringtone I have. I, mean, I thought, it's my wife's ringtone. So I thought, is she calling me right now? <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> Whew, I don't know what I did. All right. Anyway. Um, most of these chapters are split in half, where the first half is some supernatural thing is unexplained and it causes a ruckus, and then the second half, Daniel kind of comes in and explains what's going on and how it applies to the overall theme of the book, whether that's a prophecy he sees that is interpreted, or as in, the, in this case, um, the king or the regent, the leader in charge, experiences something, and then Daniel has to come in and explain what it's all about. So we've kind of got the beginning of that first part of it last week, where um, Belshazzar has experienced this vision, and just to catch you up for the first 15 verses, he was having a big lavish party. He is the Babylonian ruler, uh, co-regent with his father who is away, and so he's really over Babylon. He's a de facto king, and he is exercising great um, carelessness and recklessness with his power. He's having a big drunken party, and he's had all these people over in this big hall, and he's ordered all the uh, the vessels, the um, objects that were stolen from the Jerusalem temple when Babylon conquered Judah to be brought in so they could eat and drink from them and just make sport out of God and all of his, his sacred vessels. So that's what happened. In the middle of all of that, this hand, and not even a hand, just the fingers, a part of a hand appears and starts writing words on the wall next to the king. And of course, as anyone else would, he flips out. And he calls all of his wise men to come in and say, what do these words mean? What, is, what has happened here? Tell me what it means. Tell me the interpretation. Explain this to me. And if you do, I will reward you greatly, yada, yada, yada. Well, he brings in his wise men. And as has been a theme in this book, they're all a bunch of losers. Not a one of them can explain what anything means, why they're still on the payroll after all these years. I don't know. But they all just end up saying, oh. And so it ends up where his grandmother the so-called king, Belshazzar's grandmother, is the wife of the late Nebuchadnezzar, who we already read about in chapters 2 and 4, in particular in chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had a great vision he didn't understand, called his wise men, they couldn't make heads or tails of it, brings in Daniel, and Daniel can figure it out. Chapter 4, he has a dream, he can't figure it out, his wise men he calls in, can't make heads or tails of it, calls in Daniel, Daniel figures it out. So his wife mindful of that, says, have you tried Daniel? He's still here. He's still around. You've called in all your wise men, and they can't figure it out, make heads or tails of it. Well, it just seems like a setup for Daniel to come in. And so Daniel has now come in, where we pick up in our study of it, and notice what the king says to him, verse number 16 of Daniel 5. I have heard of you, he says to Daniel, that you can make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, you shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. If you can do this, I will lavish you with fancy clothing, with fancy jewelry, and with fancy titles. I will give you everything I can ever think to give you if you could just put my mind at ease about what this 
freaky writing means. All right, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be to yourself and your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, just to jump to the very end of this, Daniel is, as you can probably guess, going to be able to figure this out, provide for the king the answers, and is going to be offered by the king the lavish things that was promised. And Daniel's going to take them. At least he's going to take the position of power that is offered to him. Whether he takes the scarlet robe and all the jewelry, I don't know. But what he says here is basically this. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this because God has called me and given me this ability to use, in this case, to stand before your court and tell you what he's, he is saying to you. So, yeah, he kind of says no thank you here, but that doesn't mean that he is opposed to all of it on principle. It's more like, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm only giving you this because I want money. This is coming from my service to God. All right, so I'm going to give you the writing, and I'm going to make known to you the interpretation. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, it's technically his grandfather, but ancestor, your you know, forebear, a kingdom and a majesty and glory and honor. So instead of jumping right to the writing and what it means, he'll get there. He starts with a history lesson. Why? Because it plays into what the writing means and why it is written that way. If he just said what the four words mean, two repeated words, a third and fourth word, if he just said what they meant and walked away, he would he would make no sense. It would just be, um, oh, I'm not going to say, don't spoil it. He would just say what it means and then he would just walk away. Well, that's not going to help. So you want to know the interpretation, you want the application, you want the understanding. Well, that requires some context. And that context starts with your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, to whom God gave a kingdom, majesty, glory, and honor. Now, if you were to dig up Nebuchadnezzar and ask him, he would tell you he, Nebuchadnezzar, won for himself a kingdom, majesty, glory, and honor. I did all this, he would say. I accomplished all that. <laughs> Look at all the, the lands that I have conquered in my empire of Babylon. Daniel reframes the entirety of Nebuchadnezzar's historically magnificent, powerful, resume-booming uh, accomplishments. He entirely reconfigures it as just something God gave you because he was feeling like it. Everything you could ever accomplish was given to you by God. Conversely, every pitfall you've ever fallen into is either because you disobeyed God and he put you there, or God wanted to teach you a lesson and God wanted to strengthen you and, and try you and make you stronger. Either way, everything, as he's going to say later, all of your ways, his and yours and everyone else's ways are in his hands. And that comes all the way down to whether you are just a peasant who won't accomplish anything by the world's standards or you're a king, pauper or king, who can accomplish as much as an emperor over the mightiest empire of his day. Either way, what you have, God gave you. And that is certainly not the way Nebuchadnezzar would have thought of it. That is guaranteed not the way that Belshazzar would have been brought up thinking about it. Because he is, he's not technically the king yet, but he's going to be once his daddy dies. And right now he's ruling as a king, so he's got all the power and authority anyway. He certainly hasn't been raised to think this is all just something that was handed to you. He's been raised to think we earned this, we conquered this, and we control this. It's us, 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 us. And Daniel says, no, it all starts with God. God gave you all this. Verse 19. And for the majesty that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. In other words, 
Nebuchadnezzar would say, look at all that I've accomplished to the point that all of these people and nations and languages tremble before me. And Daniel just adds one little thought to the prologue of that. And he says, because of the greatness that God allowed you to have, all these people, nations, and languages tremble before you. It's that one little distinction that if you miss, you miss the whole boat. You miss everything. You focus on self and what you've accomplished and you miss what you have God gave you. And Daniel says, look at what everyone was doing and thinking about Nebuchadnezzar and see that as something God allowed to happen. Middle of the verse 19. Um, they uh, all trembled and feared before him, whom he would slay and whom he would keep alive and whom he would set up and whom he would put down. Every victory, every defeat, every act of mercy, every act of vengeance, everything that Nebuchadnezzar ever did in the mind of Daniel, the messenger of God, he frames it solely as God's doing. You, when you move the king on the chessboard, and, well, let's not use a king. You shouldn't move a king on the chessboard. You move a bishop across the chessboard, you take someone's pawn, you praise the bishop for his strategy. No, you praise the guy who put the bishop there. Nebuchadnezzar, look at all of your conquests. But God is moving you where he wants you to go. God is the chess player here. You're not even playing checkers. You're just a piece on the board. Now, we'll get to free will because that's where everyone jumps in and says, does that mean there's no free will? We'll get there from a, a phrase he's going to use in a little bit. Verse 20. But, after having said all that, but when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. So this is Daniel chapter 4. We studied this a few weeks back. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the big tall tree that everything is you know, um, satisfied under and it represents him and the greatness of his kingdom that God gave him. And the idea was supposed to humble him with the understanding that if he wasn't humbled, God would cut that tree down and shackle it and reduce it and diminish it. Well, you fast forward a year and he is not humble. In fact, he's even more arrogant than ever. He's walking around, you know, as though he's the greatest thing ever. He's the bee's knees. And he says, aren't I just the best? And that's when God strikes him down as he said that he would. So the whole idea behind Nebuchadnezzar being humbled in chapter 4, the lesson to learn is told for you here in 520, which is he got hardened with pride and was sent down. His heart was lifted up, and so he was knocked down. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar should have been thinking, look at all that I have that God gave me. But it's so easy for people just to stop with the words, I have. And they don't add to, that God gave me. And you don't have to be a king with a kingdom. You don't even have to be an adult with a house. You can be anyone with anything. And if your idea is, look at what I have. And if your heart is not set to, that God gave me. Don't expect to have much for very long. Because that's almost always when God jumps in to smack some people down. And to humble some people. To the ground. And that's the way he contextualizes Daniel 4 here. In 5 again, 520. Because his heart was lifted up and his mind was hardened with pride, God deposed him, set him off of his throne, and they took his glory from him. Verse 21. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart became like the animals, and his dwelling place was with the wild mules, and they fed him grass like an oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High ruled in the kingdom of men, and appointed it to whomsoever he will. God's punishment, as we read in chapter 4, was for this temporary insanity to take over the king. And it lasted as long as God wanted it to last until he learned the lesson, which is given for you once again at the end of this verse 21, that he would know that the Most High is the ruler in the kingdoms of men. Not Nebuchadnezzar, 
But Nebuchadnezzar is just sitting on the chair that God gave him to sit on. And he won't sit on it forever. And to prove that, to illustrate that, to remind him of that, he knocks him off of it for a little bit. And then puts it back on. Just like you put a kid in timeout just to show him who's boss and remind him who calls the shots in the house. You put him in timeout and then let him get back on his throne. So that's how Daniel starts. I called you here to tell me what these four words mean. And I got a history lesson. A history lesson, you have to be certain a, a, a form of it, Belshazzar would have learned. He would have known. Probably it was just framed as, and then your grandfather had a little episode, and he had to stop ruling for a while. But he got over it. He got better. They turned him into a nuke, but he got better. And then he came back onto the throne, and all was well again. They, you know, It didn't last. didn't take away his kingdom. So clearly, he shrugged it off because he's so great. I doubt it was contextualized to the young up-and-coming Belshazzar as the Jehovah God of the Judeans humbled him for not respecting him. I don't think that's the case based on the way he acts in this text. But that's what happened. We already read that in chapter 4. So he would have been somewhat familiar with it, but not of the particulars. And we'll see that, in fact, here in a little bit. Verse 22. And you, his son, grandson, whatever, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you know all this. You are aware of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, probably not the Jehovah part. They probably left that part out. But you at least knew that the almighty great king Nebuchadnezzar had a period where he didn't look so almighty and great. That he was just a mortal man, susceptible to failure and, and frailure, frailty and succumbing to weaknesses. And being humbled by them. Now all you got to do is just connect a quick, easy dot, a line, from being humbled to God is the humbler. God is the one who humbles. But that was the line that was left out for him. But ignorance is no excuse. Nebuchadnezzar should have known better. Lifted up with pride. Smacked down. Belshazzar should have known better. And Daniel says, those, those clock is, is turning around to you. The tables are turning around to you. You should have known better. Verse 23. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine in them, in those vessels. And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, and brass, and iron, and wood, and stone, which do not see, do not hear, and do not know. And the God in whose hand your breath is, and whose are all thy ways, you have not glorified. A big verse here. Let's break this down. Really, you can break into three parts. The first part is a reminder of what he just said. You have not humbled yourself. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And you did so, and he calls him out on this particular thing that's very recent in memory. So he knows what he did. Not too long ago, you had that big drunken party, and you took all of the sacred vessels of Jehovah, and you made sport with them, and you mocked them. And if that wasn't enough, second thing that you did you chose to worship gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, and stone. Instead of worshiping the creator, you worship creation. And it, it, you just do a cursory, breezy overview of the Old Testament. And you find repeatedly how often God lets, and I don't, when I say let's sin go, I don't mean isn't angry and won't judge. I mean doesn't always directly intervene. He, sinners are going to sin and do evil, and it happens all throughout the Old Testament. There is a judgment coming. But the times when God says, you know what, I'm doing something, almost always involve people worshiping idols. 
directly opposed to Jehovah. Not just acting in ignorance, but when they know about Jehovah and they continue to worship the idol anyway, that's a, a recipe for God stepping in and saying, you know what? It's humbling time. It's a reminder time. That happened with Nebuchadnezzar, and now it happens here with uh, Belshazzar. It, it, it's it's the, the not necessarily the most common, but it is a frequent cause of God's direct divine judgment, punishment, intervention. Is when people stop remembering that he's the creator, and they start worshiping the creation. So it's no mistake that Daniel drops that line in there in the middle of the verse. You worshiped all those gods of creation, gods which cannot see, cannot hear, and cannot know. When you could have turned to the God who sees all your needs, who hears all your pleas, and knows all your problems. You didn't. The same God, here's the third part of the verse. The King James says, in whose hand your breath is. When you breathe, it's in his hands. In other words, if he wants to, he can decide that you are going to stop breathing. And all your ways are his. The King James says, whose are all thy ways? All thy ways belong to him. In other words, well, let's get some other interpretations or uh, translations. What does your Bible say at the end of verse 23? And whose are all your ways? All right, same thing. Anyone have it phrased like in, in a different way in the syntax? And owns all your ways. Huh, what is it? Owns. Owns all your ways. All right, that's good because whose owns possession, but you could you could hear it as a question thing, and it's not. Anyone have anything different? All right, owns all your ways. All of your comings and goings, all of your doings and not doings, anything you could ever conceive or plan or plot or accomplish, God takes the credit for. Either you do good, God gave it to you, or you do bad, and God is going to use it for his benefit and punish you for your wicked. Either way, God is going to be involved in all of your doings. If you go somewhere, God is going to use it. doesn't mean God is going to force you there. It just means that what you do and where you go and what you choose not to do God is going to have a plan and a purpose that he can accomplish. Now, how does that work with free will? Let me put it this way. I, I have free will, all right? I can tell myself, I'm going to choose to run through this brick wall. Now, God is not going to make me not run through this brick wall. I'm not going to demonstrate, but I could take off running. Now, somebody tell me, am I going to actually run through this brick wall if I start and I don't stop? No, because this brick wall is going to have mastery over me more than I'll have mastery over it. But I will still be in charge of choosing to do the stupid thing of trying to run through a brick wall. Okay, That's free will. What God does throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and I choose to believe through providence throughout the present day, God erects walls and God opens doors. And when God erects a wall, he will also say, hey, wall, don't. He will warn. After he builds the wall, he will warn you not to run into it. Now, I can still choose with my free will to be an idiot and run into the wall that he put there to try to stop me from doing something stupid. He can open a door and he can say, as he does, I'm inviting you in. Here's an easier way. Here's a way out of your current predicament. Here's a solution to your current problem. Whatever. Here's a better path for your life going forward. And I, with my free will, can choose to bypass the door. I still choose, but look, do you see God's control over the situation? People hear that word control and they think a lack of free will. No, I'm still choosing whether or not I take advantage of God arranging the board for my benefit, either to teach me a lesson or to invite me to something better. But I still have mastery over myself. It's just a wall is going to be stronger than me, and I can choose to butt my head against it or walk through the open door 
that he provides. Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, any other king has a kingdom and has conquest and has great uh, accomplishment because God allowed them to have it because that worked out his will. But throughout that, those kings chose to do evil and wicked. And God sent prophet like Daniel and others to warn them, stop doing wicked. God gave you this power, but stop abusing it. And they chose to butt their head against a wall until eventually God says, all right, humble in time. I'm going to remind them who's in charge. Verse 24. So that God who accomplished all that for Nebuchadnezzar, that God who you chose to disregard as did your forebearer, that God, then was the part of the hand that you saw sent from him. And this writing was written. That God who is so greater than all creation, who is offended by the idea that you would worship silver, gold, and stone, and, and so forth, and iron. That God sent you the fingers that wrote the, the writing on the wall. And this is the writing that is written, verse number 25. Somehow I just kept getting higher and higher. Many, many tekel of harson is a thing to say on the bridge. All right, many, many tekel of harson is the words. All right, now look at it again. Verse 25. This is the thing that was written. Many, many tekel of harson. Is that what everybody's Bible says? Well, there's no. No, I don't have the up. Parson. Without the U. What do you What do you just have? What is the parson without the U and without the H. Yeah, the P A I. Oh, you just have parson like that. Yeah. S I N like that. Yeah. All right, we'll get to why it's just different, and but it'll be very simple in a little bit. So some variation of this. All right. Now I should point out these. Obviously, this is English. All right, but the words are Chaldean. But I would remind you, if you go all the way back to verse number 8, when the words are first written on the wall, nobody could read it, no one could understand it. He calls them the wise men. What, they don't speak Chaldean in Babylon? That's like, you don't speak English? This is America. Not to sound, you know, America, but that's, you know, you don't speak, it's the language. You don't speak Chaldean? We, we call you wise men? So either, either, what Daniel did is he translated what the words were, if they were written in a language they couldn't read, or... They were written plain and clear and simple Chaldean, but God obscured what they were. He hid it, as, as God has done on other occasions, like when Jesus met those men on the road to Emmaus at the end of his resurrection uh, account. He obscured his face so they couldn't see him. Well, if he can hide his face, he can hide many and tickle and a parson, right? So God could have made it so they couldn't see, so that Daniel could. One, one thing or the other, either way. Here are the words, and Daniel says, here is what they are. Now I'm going to tell you what they mean, and then I'm going to give you the application. He's going to preach him a sermon. This, this is what sermons are. I'm going to tell you what it is, I'm going to tell you what it means, I'm going to tell you what you've got to do with it when you go home today. That's what Daniel's going to do here. This is, verse 26, the interpretation of the thing. Many. The word many, let's do it like this. It's used twice. Means to number all right to number but if you just if like we go all the way back like i said before before we gave the history and the context and, all, and the point if you just said oh yeah i can read it means uh number number and walk away okay but what does that mean i know what it means but what does it mean so what is it well, who cares number so then he gives the interpretation look at the rest of the verse god has numbered your kingdom and finished it 
That's the King James Version. The word means to number. The application of the word is God has designated the end time of your kingdom. God has said your kingdom is about to come to an end. Babylon is about to be done. God has numbered your kingdom and decided when it's done. Now, it's written twice. It's written twice for, as far as I can tell, one of two reasons. If you have a third option and you think it's good, by all means share. One of two possibilities. Either it's just emphasis sake. Number, numbered are your days. Something like that, which that's perfectly normal in the Bible times. Or it's saying something like, God has numbered your days and your numbers are done. It's, it's putting a bookend on it. You have numbers that are counting down and God sees the last number that, that you're circling down to. Or I guess, look at it like this. Um, you have 100 seconds. We're counting up from zero. You have 100 seconds and you're on number 78, 79, 80, 81. Time's running out, in other words. It's one or the other. Either way, number. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Next word is tickle, which means to, to weigh. What? What? I thought it was Gucci Gucci Good. No, that's tickle. All right? We don't need anything more from the peanut gallery. To weigh. All right? Well, that's just the meaning of the word. He could just say, it's number, number, weigh. See you later. No, but he needs to give the meaning, as he says, the application. So tickle. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. You can imagine... We don't do this anymore, but in the ye olden days, you'd go to the grocer and you'd have the scale and you'd want to buy, I don't know, this is before my time. You'd go and you'd say, I want a bushel of grain or something. I don't know how this thing is. Potatoes. Potatoes? All right. And so they would weigh the potatoes. Why? To pay for them. To pay for them, obviously. They sell them per pound. And they would sell them per pound. Put them in the bags and print them. Yeah, so I know all this. So, and then they would wait. But the idea is, you have been weighed in the balances of justice, and God has said, it's uneven. You haven't acted just and righteous enough to balance the scales. Now, by the way, not a one of us have, okay? God could weigh all of us in the balances, and has weighed all of us in the balances, and found all of us wanting. That's just an old-timey way of saying, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short all have sinned and have not been able to bridge the gap between us and God. And thus, Jesus closes the gap. So, what he says to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, what he says to Belshazzar, could be said of all of us. It's just, hey, he's the guy in the spotlight. He's the guy who had the power that God gave him. He's the guy who didn't take advantage in the right way of what God gave him. So, he's under the, the hot seat, on the hot seat. So, wait. You've been weighing the balances and you've been found lacking, wanting. All right? Finally, the last word. It's also Perez. Anyone have Perez? I think, I think it says it here in verse 28. I have, I have Perez in 28. But you don't have it right earlier um, in 25, no, right? No, right. Everybody's translation, I think, is going to do that. We're going to have one word and then Daniel suddenly changes it. The only answer, it's a simple thing, all right? What is this word? Uh-huh. Now, if you want to pluralize it, what does it look like? Parties. Where, where did the IES come from? What is this word? Hang on. I think I got that right. All right and how do we shorten it? Where did G come from? Right? All languages are stupid that way. The Chaldeans are no exception. So you have just, it's, a, it's just a, a variation of the same word. Okay? Perez a parson. It's not, it's not ooh, farson, P-H make F sound. No, it's it's up har sin and 
par, par, parson, pares. It's all in the it's all variations of the same word. That's just language. You, you'll get that. It's not a, any contradiction or anything like that. The word means. What am I using? Blue. The word means to divide. All right. So again, Daniel could say, "Yeah, it's number, number, way, divide." But that's leaving me with no answers. It means numbered. Numbered are your days, or numbers, and your numbers are running out because you've been weighing the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided. And it will be given, verse 28, to the Medes and the Persians. That makes sense? Now here's Johnny Cash. Quote, Well, the Bible tells us about a man who ruled Babylon and all its land. Around the city he built a wall and declared that Babylon would never fall. He had concubines and wives. He called his Babylon paradise. On the throne he drank and ate, but for Belshazzar it was getting late. For he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. I'm not going to sing it. His kingdom was divided, couldn't stand. He was weighed in the balance and found wanting. His houses were built upon the sand. Well, the people feasted and drank their wine and praised the false gods of his time. All the holy things they scorned and mocked, but suddenly all their mocking stopped. For on the wall there appeared a hand, nothing else, there was no man. In the blood the hand began to write, which that's not accurate, and Belshazzar couldn't hide his fright. For he was weighed in the balance, blah, blah. Well, no one around could understand what was written by the mystic hand. Belshazzar tried but couldn't find a man who could give him peace of mind. But Daniel the prophet, a man of God, he saw the writing on the wall in blood. Not accurate. Belshazzar asked him what it said, and Daniel turned to the wall and read, My friend, you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided, it can't stand. You're weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your houses are built upon the sand. <coughs> Johnny Cash, 1957. Belshazzar. Yeah, I said now here's Johnny Cash. You gotta, you gotta keep up. You're thinking of funny one-liners while I'm teaching. <laughs> Good song, Belshazzar is what it's called, 1957. Anyway, 29. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed, because now he's solved the mystery, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Well, he said, do all this. I don't know what Daniel took or didn't take, accepted, didn't accept. The only thing we have coming to the next chapter, which chronologically follows this, is that he is a third ruler. He is a powerful ruler in position. Maybe he took the robe and the gold too. I don't know. There would be nothing wrong with it, but I don't know. Um, I, I just I want to point out, though, the irony of being told, essentially, your days are numbered, you're about to lose your kingdom, and it's about to be completely taken over by an outside force. So his response is, I'm going to promote you to a ruler of my kingdom. It's like making someone the president of Atari just before you release E.T. the video game. And that's maybe a dated reference, but your ship is sinking. What, giving me a promotion as junior commander of the Titanic doesn't really help, but that's what he does. Just It works out, though. He's going to stay in power, but it shouldn't have worked out. It's just bad leadership. Verse 30. In that night, well, this escalated quickly, was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Well, what happened? According to history, and that's not Bible history because it doesn't go into the details, but Herodotus, the Greek historian, says that the Persians invaded and attacked and led an attack that ended up them breaking into the palace of the king, killed the personal security. They were helped by um, turncoats in the Babylonian army, killed the king, and killed any nobles that were in the palace at the time. It was just a takeover, and thus the Medo-Persians, as you're about to read, took power. Um, Oh, according to history, why were there so many nobles and leaders and so forth in the palace to be killed at the time? According to history, they were all celebrating with a big drunken feast, which if you remember, is how this whole thing got started. 
They were having a big drunken feast, and some people said some things they shouldn't have, and did some things they shouldn't have. I'm just saying, lessons to learn. And they did it again, and they all died. 31. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. So Babylon is overthrown, and it leaves a vacuum of power. I'll erase this later. Um, and it's filled by the Medo-Persian Empire, which at this point is still just kind of a, a, a dual monarchy that's ruling together. Darius the Median takes over, but um, soon the Persians are going to be the dominant force. But anyway, um, Darius the Median is likely, not confirmed, but if you're looking for history, names and things, uh, Gobraeus is another name for him. History says he was appointed as governor of Babylon uh, by Cyrus the Great. Cyrus, we do know, is historian uh, in, in history, I mean, as a historical character. So Cyrus rules over the Medo-Persian Empire, conquers Babylon, appoints this guy Darius to rule over um, Babylon. So lesson learned. God gives and God takes. God establishes kingdoms and puts people in charge. God takes those leaders down at his mercy, at his discretion. And in this case, and not just in this case, but it's almost like all of Daniel 4 and the uh, the short period of time you started worshiping, you kept worshiping other gods, even though you knew who Jehovah was. And you had pride lifted up against God, so he's taking you down. Replaced by the Medo-Persians. All right, that's Daniel 5. Any comments or questions from that chapter before we turn the page? This is just a comment, but All right. the number, the beginning and end, like he, the number thing, uh -huh. it's interesting how God, like in the Bible, describes the beginning and end, and this is talking about a kingdom, but he ultimately determines the beginning and end of everything. Right. And ways us, uh, not just kingdoms, but our personal life, and then at the end, it talks about division. They held about us all into heaven and hell someday. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's like a bigger concept than just the kingdom. Yeah, that's and you can take what we read and you can apply it in a personal kind of way, right? The God who has no beginning and no end naturally will see your beginning and your end, and He will number your days. And He, the Bible even says, numbers your days. And so you will know. And if you are not doing right, He will sometimes warn you and say, your days are almost out, your numbers almost done. At which point, you better, you better get right, or time is out. And Belshazzar did not. So, yeah, no matter what, here's a God who can see and know all before and after forevermore. And you're, you're not even that big. You're just a, a blip on the speck of his vision. So, yeah, he sees and he weighs. And he has that, he has that vantage point to be able to weigh the so-called balances because he can see all of your beginning and end since he has no beginning or end. All right. Daniel chapter 6. Remember, we're doing this chronologically. So after chapter 6, which... We'll have to finish next week, which that was the plan. The week after is Thanksgiving. Then we'll come back. Even though it's technically the end of the quarter, you're welcome to go to another class. But I'm going to use the rest of December to finish this book. And we're going to go after chapter 6, uh, 10, 11, and 12, and then end with chapter 9. All right? So we're following chronological. But if you remember how we broke down the outline of the book, it's, it's rings. So the, uh, the beginning of the book and the end of the book cover the same idea. Going into exile, promises to come out of exile. You have in the middle part of the book um, the the uh, protection of the faithful people of God, chapter three, chapter six. You have in the more of the middle of the book um, the uh, prophecies and visions of the kingdom, chapter seven, chapter two, and then you have in the dead center bullseye, uh, chapter four, chapter five. God raises and lowers kingdoms at His own discretion. So that kind of outline isn't chronological, 
but chronologically, chapter 6 follows chapter 5, so it's not really a, a headache. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. It please, so, wait, sorry, because I worked through that really quickly. Um, so chapter 6 ties in with chapter 3. We already studied chapter 3. Chapter 3 is God delivers the faithful, in that case, from the fiery furnace. Chapter 6, God delivers the faithful, in this case, from, we'll find out, the lion's den. 6-1. It pleased Darius, same guys before, to set over the kingdom of Babylon, 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. So, new leader, new government, new arrangement of distribution of power. So he's appointing all these people to rule, and he's just going to be the rubber stamp guy. All right? Um, princes, satraps, your Bible might even say, if you have a more modern translation, satrap, um, viceroy, something like that. Just guy of official power, but not the ruler. All right? Now, in other words, you've got Darius here, 120 guys down here, all the, the peasants down here who get no say in anything, but there's going to be three who are going to be in charge of them. Three who are going to be in charge of them. And probably, I don't know if it's a coincidence or if they just adopted it, but Babylon, just based on what we read, seems to have a triumvirate power structure anyway. You had, back in Babylon's day, Nebuchadnezzar, 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 whoever is in control, and they would have three rulers. Daniel was even, even said, you can be one of my three rulers or one of the third rulers. A triumvirate power structure with lower people under them and then you know, the people who have no say below them. Same idea is going to be done here. Look at verse number two. Over these, over that, all those princes were three, the King James says, presidents, presiders, three people of, of great authority, of whom Daniel was the first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. So it's just, you know, it's your basic governmental kind of structure. You guys are the nitty-gritty in each particular area. You answer to us, and we answer to him. It's just organized that way. Daniel was among those. In fact, it's called the first of them. Verse 3. Then this Daniel <clears throat> was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, the King James says. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. What does your Bible say when mine says an excellent spirit was in him? Do you have a different translation? Same thing? All right. He looked at Daniel and he saw a man of great character, a great quality, great, you know, not just personality, but a person who was trustworthy to do what he wants to do because he's taking this triumvirate power structure and he's thinking about completely upending it so that you don't have three of equal power, but you have one who is higher than the other two who answers directly to the king. Basically, this whole thing, it's all us all done so the king doesn't have to do anything except just get his feet, you know, rubbed and eat grapes from, you know, people who hand him grapes. So this is just a way to say, hey, I trust this guy the most to handle all of the details. So he can be in charge of them and they can be in charge of them and they can, you know, be in charge of everybody else. And I'll just I'll just sit there and I'll say, you know, rubber stamp, rubber stamp, rubber stamp. And that's Darius's idea, and it's going to completely backfire by the political manipulation of the people. <clears throat> so, Daniel, because he had those qualities, he's thinking about putting him in charge of everybody. Verse 4. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no occasion or fault because he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. So you can imagine what these two guys in particular, these guys really aren't changing much, but they're in on it. They're in on it. But these guys would have a legitimate reason from their perspective to want to destroy 
Daniel. Because no one's ever been a politician who hasn't thought about who they have to stab in the back next to be a more popular politician. So here is Daniel who is being considered to a position that would elevate him above them. So their first instinct is not to congratulate him or throw him a party. Their first instinct is to shiv him in the back. And thus they say, we need to find a reason against him concerning the kingdom. We need to find something he's doing that's against the law that will make the king, the ruler, in other words, want to not do this and not give Daniel more power than he already has. It can't just be um, he doesn't tip his waiter. It has to be something against the kingdom, something that is going to say, look, Daniel does not regard the king. And really what they're going to do, and we'll have to get into it next week, is they're going to say Daniel is going to put God over the king. And if Daniel's going to put God over the king, well, we can use that in some way against him. I'll get to that in a second, but, well, no, I'll get to it right now because we have five minutes. I want you to just think for a second what their plan is and what it, it, it hinges on, okay? We're going to get to the details as it goes on next week. But their entire plan hinges on the belief that if we put Daniel in a situation where he has to choose between God and country, he will choose God. And if Daniel chooses country, the whole plan fails, all right? The only way this works in their mind, the only way we're going to get him, is if we can get him to choose God over country. And they have such a confidence that Daniel would choose God over country that they go along with this whole plan, which involves deceiving the king, which could be their death if they're caught. They are that certain that they can get away with this based on the certainty that Daniel loves God more than country. Now, could that be said of you? Could that be said of me? Could someone think about me, if, if he was forced to do it, he would side with God over his, his land. That if he was forced to do it, he would always choose God, even when it was inconvenient nationally. Could that be said of me? Because I guarantee you it was said of Daniel. Of all the people to think it, it was his enemies, unbiased, biased against him, in fact, through the other direction, who thought, that's Daniel. Now, how can we use that? It says a lot about their negative character. That they want to use his righteousness against him. But it says a lot about his righteousness. That it was seen and so certain that they thought they could use it against him. That's, I mean, that's remarkable. Am I, am I wrong? I don't think so. Verse 5. That's everything I just said is in verse 5. Then said the men, we cannot find any occasion against Daniel with regard to his conduct toward the king. Except unless we found it against him concerning the law of his God. The only thing we could do is find a way to use Daniel's faithfulness to God and his law against him. And I just want you to I just, that your homework tonight and come back next week and tell me how you did is to think to yourself, am I exhibiting certain characteristics that will make people see me first as a Christian and second as an American? Or do they see me as someone who no matter what happens, that person is going to be loyal to country? Make God, make God your king. Make God, make, make, make heaven your country. This is just where you're living for a time. Verse 6. Then the presidents and the princes assembled together to the king, and they said to him, King Darius, live forever, which they always have to say, even though these kings keep dying, they have to keep saying, you'll be the one who lives forever. Verse 7. <clears throat> king Darius, all the presidents of the kingdom, governors and the princes and the counselors and the captains, they've all consulted together. We had this great idea to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever shall ask any petition of any god or man for 30 days unless they make that petition for you of you to you O king he'll be cast into the den of lions 
So to get that very wordy thing out, here's what they say. We had this idea that for just 30 days, for 30 days, we would make a law that if anybody wants to pray, they have to pray to you. Instead of praying to their God or some other man, they're going to pray to you because you're the king, you're the greatest, you're the best. And right now his head's just doing this, you know, and he's thinking, I am, I am, yeah, let's, let's, that's what's going to happen, all right? He has no idea how he has been manipulated, how his pride is being used against him, how this power structure where all you have to do is just rubber stamp a law is going to be turned against the one that he has already decided is the best of these three. By the way, he's not there when this decision is made, right? Now he's the best of them, and now he's about, in his mind, he thinks he's about to lose him. Well, he doesn't even know yet, but that's what seems like is about to happen. And if they don't do that, if, no, if everybody, if anybody doesn't pray to you just for 30 days, they'll be cast into a den of lions. Now, we're going to stop because I don't want to go any further because um, I want to get into the law of the Medes and Persians and all that next week. But let's just, just to cover two quick things and then we'll stop. Uh, den of lions, chapter three, you know, you'll get this when people talk about the Bible and they haven't really studied the Bible. They'll ask, why, why are we killing people with fire in chapter 3 and with lions in chapter 6 if it's the same country? Well, it's the same land, but it's a totally different government. The, the, the uh, Persians worship fire, or I may have that backwards. Maybe the Babylonians worship fire. That's why they used it. Or the Persians worship fire. That's why they didn't. It's one of those. You can Google it. So they naturally would change the, the punishment system to be tossed into a, a den of lions, which is no less painful, I'm certain. So there's that. Um, I'll, we'll leave it there. We'll, we'll pick it up with the law of the Medes and Persians and so forth next week. So just mark your Bibles there in Daniel 6. Thanks, you guys, very much.